It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. We're gearing up for our next season to begin. Season 13, to be exact. That's right. And all season long, we'll be looking at past awards categories and discussing the nominated films. We're kicking off our new season with a series looking at the 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominees. But back in season five, we discussed six of the ten nominees. Because of that, we're releasing those episodes now so that you can get ready for this series. That's right. We're going to release those episodes from 2015 and 2016, in which we discuss Gone with the Wind, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Ninochka, Stagecoach, and The Wizard of Oz. And to top it off, we'll be streamlining those older episodes a bit, so they're just focusing on the films themselves. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Andy? Yeah? Would you like to see my wound? <laughs> Go to bed, little father. We want to be alone. 
please. You like me just a little bit? Your general appearance is not distasteful. Thank you. The whites of your eyes are clear. Your cornea is excellent. Your cornea is terrific. Love isn't so simple, Ninochka. Ninochka, why do doves bill and coo? Why do snails, the coldest of all creatures, circle interminably around each other? Why do moths fly hundreds of miles to find their mates? Why do flowers slowly open their petals? Oh, Ninochka, surely you feel some slight symptom of the divine passion. A general warmth in the palms of your hands. A strange heaviness in your limbs. A burning of the lips that isn't thirst, but something a thousand times more tantalizing, more exalting than thirst. You're very talkative. Ninochka, 1939, Ernst Lubitsch, uh, written by Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder. Uh, and and uh, there were other people who wrote this. Two more. Who are those two other credits? Oh, Walter Reich, uh, based on the original story by Melkor Lengil. Lengil. Yeah. I'm not quite sure how to say that one. Melchior, Melchior, Lengil, Lengel. Yeah, I'm gonna stick. I'm gonna stick with that. Uh, Melky. We'll just say Melky. good old Melky. Melky Lengi. Yeah. Uh, and this is uh, this is a Greta Garbo flick. Mm. Ah, Sweden. Oh yes. This is, a, this is a nod to our dear friends in Sweden. We're finally doing a Garbo flick. Uh, also stars Melvin Douglas, uh, Ina Claire, Bella Lugosi, Sig Ruman. And Felix Braceart and other wonderful uh, people in this film. Andy? Yes. I am so charmed by this movie. <laughs> it was an easy watch. It was it was just really light, easy to sit down and get through. Uh, and I felt super charmed by Greta Garbo. I think she was she plays a wonderful stoic. And then when she finally breaks out and laughs and smiles, it is so rewarding. It is a fairly straightforward story. Uh, and uh, uh, it just everything in this film worked really beautifully for me. How did it hit you? It's it was so funny watching this right after Gone with the Wind. Right? Which was four hours. It had all these things that we had to talk about. And then there's this, which is like as light as a feather. <laughs> it's like we could have gone to the opposite extreme of 1939 with any other film. That was quite, uh, quite a good jump that we did there. That is so I, true. I liked it. I did like it. I, I loved the cast. I loved the the actors, uh, just the, the the performances that they gave us, the the story was fun. I caught myself laughing out loud a number of times, which I always enjoy in some of these older films, just to prove that the uh, the comedy really does stand up. And I think uh, you know Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett definitely had a uh, a thing to do with that. Um, you know, I had some issues with the story, but. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a light Lubitsch comedy. I didn't, I didn't uh, stress myself out about it too much. I, cause I, you know, when the film ended, I was smiling, I was happy. And, and that was that. I think that's the important part. And I think you hit it. Like the fact that we're watching this film and even talking about this film after gone with the wind is probably doing too much of a service to this film. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, I think that we're, we're, we, I know I, when I watch this film, I know that I was, uh, really easy on it because it was so easy on me. 
Um, yeah, right. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And so, uh, anyhow, I still, I was just charmed by this sweet story, this sweet little sort of legal caper, uh, that, that really ended up working for me. So, um, let's see. How would you like to talk? Do you want to just walk through sort of what, what the film is about? I imagine this is one that not quite so many people have seen compared to Gone with the Wind. Yeah, probably not. I mean, the, uh, I think that looking at the, um, the plot on Wikipedia is probably the best way to just get it across real quick. Sure. Three Ru- three Russians, Ironov, Buljanov, and Kapalsky, are in Paris to sell jewelry confiscated from the aristocracy during the Russian Revolution of 1917. Upon arrival, they meet Count Leon Dalgut, I'm not quite sure how you say his name, on a mission from the Russian Grand Duchess Swana, who wants to retrieve her jewelry before it's sold. He corrupts them and talks them into staying in Paris. The Soviet Union then sends Nina Ivanova Ninochka Yakushova, a special envoy whose goal is to go through with the jewelry sale and bring back the three men. Rigid and stern at first, she slowly becomes seduced by the West and the Count, who falls in love with her. The three Russians also accommodate themselves to capitalism, but the last joke of the film is that one of them carries a sign protesting that the other two are unfair to him. It's really nice, nice little touch. Funny. It was funny. <laughs> it was a very silly little jab at the end, but I enjoyed quite a bit. <laughs> I, I I love our three uh, Russian. Yeah, Ironov, Bulgenov, and yeah, Kapolsky. They are wonderful. <laughs> they are wonderfully charming. I think that's where opening the film with these guys uh, that uh, allow us to see uh, the cultural conflict that they're about to experience is they are such great vessels for this it's it, it you know watching them experience uh and and keep ratcheting up their experience with capitalism it's perfect it is just perfect they're yeah the the comedy is is smart in the way that they develop with these three characters very um conflicted with i mean we see them i believe initially it's it's checking out the interior of the hotel and trying to get a sense of the scale. And it looks way too grandiose for them. And they just don't think that their uh, leaders would want them to stay there. But then they kind of talk each other into, no, our leaders would want us to stay here. And, and the way that they keep talking each other into things and talking themselves into things and just kind of amping up their, <laughs> what they're doing, uh, the reasoning uh, as they're, as they're, saying well we should stay in the bigger suite but well it's it's because of we need the bigger safe you know and it, it it really just got funny because these guys just just are totally sucked into the this fantastic world of capitalism and uh they play it so well and they play it well that when they're interacting with uh, uh leon melvin douglas's character that's fantastic there that, that that fun scene when he's trying to help them out and they just kind of keep coming in and kissing him <laughs> <laughs> it was it was just it was done really it, it was done really well it was written very smartly in a way that that made it made it believable it is it, it's it's also one of those things that i think uh it it demonstrates uh the 1930s and 40s impression of communism which is that it's fabulously flimsy Right. That it that it is a weak point in in Russia. Right. Because these guys are so easily swayed everywhere they turn. And in fact, you think that it's going to have some sort of a uh, there, there's going to be some sort of communist redemption when, uh, you know, when Ninochka comes uh, and 
you know, to take over negotiations on behalf of these three buffoons who have now been completely swayed by capitalism, even though they they use the words of, of uh, you know, communism, but but not their actions. Uh, and so she she comes over. You think this stern diplomat is going to be, you know, taking the reins and she is completely swayed by by the absolute fantasy of love and ends up being uh, rescued from communism uh, by Leon at the end of the film. So, uh, you know, it, it is, I think, a, a wonderful example of uh, of a comedy, a light comedy that actually makes a fairly significant statement about the uh, the contemporary sort of the 1930s contemporary uh, impression of uh, this foreign uh, foreign state. In a in a really funny way, they're able to make these wonderful jokes about, you know, the five year was it the five year war or the five year plan? Yes. He says, Oh yeah, I, I've I've love, you know, I can't remember what his response, but it's something but yeah, I, I I've I've been a big supporter of the five year plan for the past fifteen years. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And then she's got she's got that great line about how they're going to uh you know the mass trials have been going really well. We're gonna have fewer but stronger Russians. Yes. Which, <laughs> yes. So great. And this is I mean, this is when comedy works really well, when you're able to put it into a very contemporary setting and really just poke fun at it in a way that um makes for great storytelling, but also um ends up highlighting some of the things that are going on that people are thinking about and, uh, and, you know, pointing out, yes, this is kind of what is on our minds as far as uh, communism as this growing thing. And is it something to worry about? They don't seem to be that with it. Yeah, or certainly that committed to it. Um, and, and, you know, when you it's it's there, there's beautiful sense of sort of punctuation put on that that storyline when they're all back in Russia, they're all back in Moscow and they, you know, they they bring their eggs for the communal omelet. You know, she right. has two eggs and each of the each of the three, uh, you know, her friends have their own egg that they're bringing. And and I think it's Bulyanov who reaches into his pocket and realizes his egg is crushed. And he, he you know, he, he pulls out this incredibly like disgusting, soggy, mucusy hand uh, from his <laughs> pocket with his crushed egg. And and that that little moment, while it, it everything works out because, oh, there's enough for everybody. Uh, that egg is representative of, of something really important, which is, you know, this this austerity that comes with communism is something that we're going to lampoon uh, right. in, in cinema. So I thought that was uh, I thought that was really interesting. And it made this film, I think, more interesting than just a simple comedy to me. Yeah, it did. It, it did. Um, and I, I think that the players really tapped into just the way to tell this sort of story. I mean, it's not a very, I mean, the camera work um, was, you know, standard Hollywood stage camera work, nothing too fancy. It takes place in Paris, but, you know, clearly they uh, weren't filming it there. Mm -hmm. Um, The, uh, just the style was very, uh, just kind of, it, it fit in the time as far as this is kind of what you went in expecting, kind of just the, the basic studio film was going to look like. And uh, to that end, I think it really does boil down to the strength of the script and the strength of the actors in it. And I think that's a huge factor in making a film like this is, is getting these actors to uh, really do strong jobs with these parts. Melvin Douglas was wonderful as Leon. And uh, I mean, geez, we've kind of gone from one end of his career to the other uh, from being there 
back down to this, just talking about him in a couple different things. Um, but he was great in this. I mean, he's, he's just so easygoing and the, the way that he plays this, uh, this lawyer is just so much fun to watch. Well, I, I, I'm so glad you brought up being there, man, 1939 to 1979. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, and still that he started, uh, in, in 1931, boy, we really did cover just about the, the entire scope of his career. He was fantastic in this film. He is, he is as charming as I would want a 1930s leading man to be. Uh, and, and yet it was, you know, it's, it's sort of the same thing you said about sleeping with other people, you know, watching those two on screen. I actually, I, I found myself really uh, enamored by them. Like I, I, I bought it. I, I thought they were, uh, they were great. Uh, much of his performance, I think was, was um, really highlighted by Garbo's performance, which I, I think her, you know, as I said, her stoicism allowed his comedy to shine. Yeah, it's funny because you always say that, you know, there's the the funny man and the straight man. The straight man is the one who plays opposite the one who's being all goofy and stuff. And yeah. and, and in, in a weird way, she ends up being the funny man by being so much the straight person, right? Like right. her, her, like that stoic, harsh Russian personality is so over the top that she ends up being the funny one. Even, even though, you know, the, the whole marketing campaign for this was Garbo laughs because, you know, people at the time really hadn't seen a lot of Garbo laughing in films, even though that's kind of absurd because she had laughed in other films before this film. But that was kind of the big, the big punch, you know, punchline with all the posters and the trailers, everything is Garbo laughs as if uh, people hadn't seen it before. Um, But even before she laughs, she is the one who ends up being so funny because of the way that she is being so stern. Like when she's talking about love as this chemical reaction and everything. I mean, she plays that so well. She really does. And, and I, I think they, you know, she turns the table on Leon, right? Who, who starts by sort of following her, but he really legitimately falls in love with her and he gets to be the lovelorn sort of puppy, um, as, as she begins to sort of flirt about. And it's, it, it's a really fun exchange. Uh, but then you take them back to Russia and we lose Leon for a little while and you see that she ends up playing sort of the, the, that character in relationship with the, the three amigos, you know, the three emissaries. Uh, and I think that is equally funny. You know, they're, they're sort of straight man comedian, uh, relationship as they're all singing around the table. Um, I, I think it's just, uh, it's really artfully structured, I think, the, the film. And in terms of the comedy, at least the layout of the, the, the comedic scenes, uh, one after the other. Yeah, I agree. And it was nice. It was nice having her, it, I mean, it works well for a character transition to have her go back to Russia and now, uh, and lose her man, essentially, uh, in order to make this deal happen. And now we see her um, uh, how, how this new look at life and and capitalism is going to affect her now back in home in the homeland, so to speak. Um, it's smart screenplay writing because she fell for uh, for Leon about you know I don't know at the, about at the midpoint of the film, I guess I'd say. Right. And I was kind of wondering, wow, that seemed kind of quick it seemed kind of sudden for her to change that quickly in this film. Where are they going to go from here in order to really make this work? And I was like, the only where the only place I can see it going is now her boss is going to come over 
and he's going to now, and they're all going to have to kind of pretend they're the you know stern Russian people to figure this out. And so it was a nice twist to see that, oh, no, she actually goes right back to Russia. And, you know, the whole jewelry thing kind of is dropped and resolved, really. I mean, that had been such a key part of this plot is figuring out this this jewelry deal. But she ends up going back to Russia. And then it really just becomes a character film about Ninochka and how this exposure to uh, the the capitalistic society in, in gay old Paris at the time um, really ended up opening her eyes to what's out there. And, uh, and as we see her marching and dealing with these horrid roommates that she has, which are hilarious, um, and, you know, having this secret omelet with her friends, you get this beautiful sense of this woman who's finally seen what's out there, but now has had it taken away from her. And yes, there's this there's this incredible sense of tragedy that she kind of bears once she's back in Russia now. Oh, absolutely. And and I love that because that is her character transformation. It is her exposure to Russia after she's been exposed to capitalist capitalist Paris that allows us to see her change. And it makes it so much more rewarding when she is ultimately extracted from Russia and she's reunited with Leon that it is uh, it's been worth it. Like it, it's been a, it's a relationship, a, a reunion that we believe that is going to be stronger as a result of of her experience going back to Russia. I, I really like that bit of it. Yeah, I did, too. I also liked that we didn't have to see Leon back in Paris working to pull the strings to try to figure out how to get her out and back to him. Boy, and they didn't give us anything. No, it was it was a complete surprise. And uh, all of a sudden, she's just getting sent back over. I think she was sent down to Turkey or whatever. And that's where she's uh, surprisingly reunited with uh, with Leon. And it was wonderful. It was a very nice little way that they did that. I, I liked the structure of the script. It surprised me. And that um, sometimes in some of these older films, you don't necessarily get surprised because it seems they ended up setting so many of the tropes of screenwriting structure the way it ended up moving. So you can, like like his next film, uh, The Shop Around the Corner, that is a structure that it's it, it was kind of easy to figure out where that's uh, Ernst Lubitsch's next film, I should say. Yeah. It's easier to see where that story is going to go. Uh, and, and it's a wonderful story to watch, but you can kind of tell how things are going to shape up. But this one really, I mean, it did surprise me. It was a, it was a pretty strong, uh, nice structure that really highlighted this character. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? (laughs) Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusty's taking trips to Europe? 
We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. So what do you have to say about Garbo? I mean, we've, we've talked a little bit about her already and her performance uh, here, but as you know, but this was her second to last film. It was, it was her second to last film. Yeah. She, uh, I, I don't remember uh, what happened to her, but she, uh, she didn't die until 1990. I think she just kind of stepped out of the business for a while. Right. And, uh, uh this was, uh, she did one more film after this and, uh, and then she called it quits. Yeah. She, did Two-Faced Woman in 1941, directed by George Q. Cor, and uh, uh, also with Melvin Douglas, actually. And, uh, yeah, then then she uh, disappeared. Isn't it interesting that her last two films end up being comedies? Her only comedies, really straight-up comedies. Right, right, yeah. Uh, and that dri- they drive her out of the business. That's a, that's she, yeah, a story she, I'm pitching right now. She Well, she just wanted to, uh, you know, have a private life. You know, yeah. just a, a simple life and uh, get out of things. She she didn't like the publicity. That was really hard on her is uh, what I remember reading. And so, I mean, you know, she never did public appearances again. And um, she pretty much just avoided the spotlight as much as she could. And uh, just kind of was a very reclusive, quiet person and uh, enjoyed the rest of her life. Never married, no children. Yeah, pretty amazing. Amazing, uh, and, she, not, and she and she lived in uh, in a place in, uh, on Fifty uh, Second Street in Manhattan for from the nineteen fifties all the way until nineteen ninety when she died. I am not uh, terribly familiar with too much of her work, uh, you know, in terms of particularly her silent films. I've seen the the big ones that you're supposed to see, uh, but I have not seen. Uh, I, I haven't seen much. Like, what is your? Are you are you a Garbo connoisseur? No. You know what's funny is I swear I had seen something of hers before, and then I was looking through her uh, her filmography, and I realized I don't think I had actually seen any of her films. I thought I had seen Grand Hotel, but I that's one of the uh, the best picture winners that I somehow have just managed to not see. So that's, that's eluded me. And looking at her list, it's like, wow, I have actually missed every one of her films. Wow. That, that surprises me. I feel like I uh, should get some sort of a prize. I've seen two. Uh, (laughs) I have seen Grand Hotel and I have seen Anna Karenina. Uh, And I feel like those are the ones you're supposed to see. And Uh, Camille, I think is another one. Camille. So I'm, I am behind on that. I've not seen uh, that. Uh, well, we might have to do a Garbo series. There we now. go. There we yeah. go. Uh, I think that would be worth it. But I haven't I seen too. any of the earlier ones, any of the silent films. She's she's been around for a long, long time. Uh, she doesn't have that extensive of a credit uh, of a, a list of credits. Thirty-two uh, credits as an actress, um, and and still, um, inter- such an interesting face on screen. Yeah, she's very beautiful. She's very. Um easy to watch she plays uh this russian very well and i mean i i think that she's one of those actresses who ends up 
creating a lot of mystery about her persona because of how she despised the media. She despised the studio. She despised all the the rules that Hollywood had. Um, she didn't like giving interviews. She didn't like signing autographs. She didn't like going to uh, the industry events. And I think because of that, she became very um, mysterious and um, created this persona that really made her that much more interesting to watch on screen. And um, yeah, I, I think it draws you in looking at this woman, yeah. knowing that there's so little to know about her. She plays strength on screen without any camp. And I think that's one thing that sets her apart from, you know, other women of her of her class and cast uh, of the era. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, the one big problem that I have with the with the script is her her transition happens so suddenly from and it's all from him falling and making her laugh, which I thought was very funny. And I loved how she just kind of broke and completely was taken or completely was taken by the moment, I should say. But I did find that all of a sudden the fact that she was totally smitten by him and and had a complete character transformation just from that laugh, I found that a bit of a stretch. But again, like I said, it was very easy to forgive this movie. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll forgive you. (laughs) Uh, who, Who else would you like to talk about? Um, we already talked about Melvin Douglas and, uh, and Greta Garbo. Um, Ina Claire, I don't know much about her. I, I did enjoy seeing her in the film. She's a very small filmography, but, um, uh, yeah, she seemed like she was an interesting actress of the time. I haven't seen anything else that she's done. I don't think. No, I mean, she's very small filmography. She did a lot of stage work, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, and then the others that I wanted to talk about are the, the trio, mm-hmm. um, Sig Ruman, who, uh, was very funny as kind of the leader of the group. Um, the reason that I recognize him, he was actually in, uh, we're going to see him actually in a few weeks because he's also in only angels have wings. And then he was also in a couple other films in 1939 confessions of a Nazi spy and Honolulu again, you know, these people. Mm-hmm. They're very busy mm-hmm. in these uh, in this period, but the reason that um, he just stands out to me is because uh, fairly recently I had just watched Stalag Seventeen, um, a Billy Wilder uh, right. World War II uh, uh, war camp film, and he is the wonderful German soldier who uh, is always um, uh, you know just talking to the to these guys. And has such a pleasant way about him. And he was so memorable in that film. I mean, it wasn't like one of my favorite films, but boy, was he memorable. And as soon as he came on screen, I just instantly recognized him. He's just, he has such wonderful screen presence. And whether it's as a, a German uh, running the prison camp or as a Russian in this particular film, he's just a delight to watch on screen. I agree. Uh, I, I have not seen, I don't believe I've seen Stalag 17, which I it's, think I mean, should be on watching. my list of shame, right? Yeah, it's definitely worth watching. Yeah. Um, he also was in some Marx Brothers movies like The Day of the Races, and uh, he was in uh, To Be or Not To Be, one of my Another favorite Another Lubitsch films. film, right? Yeah, one yeah. Of, I think that might be my favorite Lubitsch film. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he had a, a busy career all the way up until the 60s, so... 
um, definitely made a lot of stuff. I, I did like uh, Sigrumen, but in terms of my uh, my favorite, it would be uh, Felix Bressart as uh, Bulyanov. Oh, yeah. Who I just found so funny. Yeah, they all work really well. And he actually turns up in Lubitsch's very next film, The Shop Around the Corner. Right. Yeah. Uh, I thought he was funny. And, and uh, he was in, uh, let's see, gosh, I guess he was in To Be or Not To Be too. Oh, yeah, he was. Uh, right. Isn't that funny? Uh, and then, of course, Alexander Granach. Granach? 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 Yeah, Gran- Granach? Granach? Yeah. Uh, boy, he's been in some big films uh, from, you know, the original uh, Nosferatu, uh, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls in 1943. Um, he doesn't have that many credits, 55 credits, but uh, but it was uh, also fun to, to see him show up. I think the, the three of them taking some what they have done, both some great comedies and but some very serious roles and, and show up as as three practically vaudevillian uh comedians in this film is great yep yep yeah they're wonderful and then of course there's the the <laughs> big build but small uh small time on screen bella yeah. lugosi Razinin. i was expecting that's uh, maybe that's why i was expecting him to show up in paris and have kind of like the last half of the film with her but he's got like the one scene <laughs> one scene and like 15 lines I was really surprised. I mean, I, I know it's Bella Lugosi, but I guess I was just surprised that his his part was so small, or because it was so small that they cast someone like Bella Lugosi in it. Um, it was a, a little bit of a kind of a, a disappointment to see him in such a small part because this um, wasn't really. I mean, this wasn't the end of his career. This wasn't like the token role for Bella Lugosi. I mean, after 1939, he still had you know a good 15 years of work ahead of him. Yeah, I mean, he had not gotten anywhere near doing some of the uh, lower-end films that he uh, ended up doing later yeah. in his career, like in his Ed Wood days. Um, this was still in, you know, I mean, geez, he had, uh, what was the other film he did in 1939? Son of Frankenstein. Right. Well, so, he, I the mean, other film he did in 19, he did Son of Frankenstein, The Gorilla, Nanochka, The Phantom Creeps, and The Human Monster in 1939. Yeah, right. Like, that's a busy guy. Yeah, maybe right, that's why right. his scene was so short. He had too many other things on going on. Yeah, maybe, and it was just kind of a stunt casting. Yeah, it's possible. Let's talk about Ernst, Ernst. Lubitsch. Lubitsch. Mm. Um, the Lubitsch touch. The the Lubitsch touch. Seventy six credits. Uh, ended up. He was born in eighteen ninety two. Died in nineteen forty seven. He's a young guy. Mm. He died fifty five years old. Uh, have we talked about him before? We have not. Why does it feel like we have? Uh, his films, he, he, you know, I, I see his style as one that could fit some of the other films that we have talked about because they uh, they feel of the era. You know, to be or not to be, the shop around the corner. Those all have that same sort of vibe, uh, and um, you know, I mean, they're all such great films. I mean, yeah. It would be fun to do a series of his movies. He's it, got some good stuff. It would, especially because we're hitting him with Ninochka toward the end of his career. Um, you know, in 1939, he was working actively for another eight years. He had or eight or nine years. He had uh, only, it looks like, seven films after this one. Uh, in his 76 credit uh, uh, career he's you know i think he's gotten an awful lot early on particularly in the in the uh in the 20s that would be interesting i think to look at well geez yeah i mean he started in 1914 Mm -hmm. 
uh, making silent stuff. So, I mean, he had been around a very long time. A lot um, of German stuff that, yeah. that would be beyond yeah. me. Yeah, right, right. But uh, it would be very interesting to look at more of his films. Um, I like his stuff, but he is, uh, I mean, I said the Ernst touch, or the Lubitsch touch, sorry, um, earlier. It's, it is something that he kind of became famous for. And um, his biographer wrote this about the Lubitsch touch. With few exceptions, Lubitsch's movies take place neither in Europe nor America, but in Lubitsch land, a place of metaphor, benign grace, rueful wisdom. What came to preoccupy this anomalous artist was the comedy of manners and the society in which it transpired, a world of delicate sangra, I don't know how you say that, where a breach of sexual or social propriety and the appropriate response are ritualized, but in unexpected ways, where the basest things are discussed in elegant whispers of the rapier, never the broadsword. To the unsophisticated eye, Lubitsch's work can appear dated simply because his characters belong to a world of formal sexual protocol, but his approach to film, to comedy, and to life was not so much ahead of its time as it was singular and totally out of any time. This film is actually an interesting one because it wasn't really done in the Lubitsch style because it's so clearly set in Europe, in in uh, Paris, and then in, in Soviet Russia. Except for uh, you know, they say the one real scene in here that is kind of the Lubitsch touch is the uh, is the stag uh, meal or whatever it is that they have, where where um, Leon kind of puts on this big party for the three Russians, and they have this big party, and you don't really see the party; it's all done from outside in the hallway of the hotel and you just hear the raucous enjoyment that they're having inside. And you see the cigarette lady come up and go inside and you see her kind of disheveled and leave. And then you see her come back with two more cigarette ladies and they go in. And the way that he kind of created that um, style of showing what was going on with this party without actually showing what was going on in the party was a very interesting way that is kind of part of this Lubitsch touch. I thought that was brilliant. It was, it It was a great way to do that. It It was very economical. It yeah, is, uh, that's a great way to put it. It, it was economical, but it, it, you know, it's the it's the Jaws effect. I guess the Jaws effect is the Lubitsch effect, right? The less we sh- we saw, uh, you know, the the funnier it was. Yeah, uh, and and it's I, I I feel like I don't see that that trick used in comedy enough. I it's it's hard to do. I mean, it really takes. I think it takes a very skilled hand to be able to pull that off effectively especially by filmmakers these days because so many filmmakers feel seem to feel they just need to show everything yeah 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 well it was it's fascinating i really um really enjoyed uh that that part of it i thought that was really effective yeah absolutely uh let's see um who is, we've talked a lot about the script already, Charles Brackett, Billy Wilder. Do we want to do we do we have some things to add about Billy Wilder? You know, other than he's a, a brilliant writer director. I mean, this was uh, this was definitely early in his Hollywood career. I mean, I think he um, didn't uh, I think he had directed uh, Malve Grain, Malve Grain. I'm not quite sure. Uh, how you say that, but it's his directorial debut in 34. Um, and I believe it was, where was that filmed? Was it a, was it a French picture? It was a, it was a European picture. I don't think it was directed over in, here. In what year? 34. Oh, okay. 
So that was his first directing credit. And then he kind of came over here to Hollywood and ended up uh, having a lot of uh, uh, jobs doing writing. And uh, that led to him directing in the early 40s, I believe, is when he started. We, uh, if you want to hear us wax even more poetic about Billy Wilder, hit the uh, double indemnity episode. There you go. Yeah. We do. We do love us some Billy Wilder. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. The other uh, Walter Reich uh, involved in the screenplay, Walter Reich, is, uh, but we have also not talked about any of the uh, Walter Reich films, but he's another uh, German writer uh, and uh, from Austria, Austria, Hungary at the time. Yeah, was, definitely a lot of stuff in his uh, filmography. Yeah, he's been around a long time. His last, uh, his last theatrical credit was Journey to the Center of the Earth in 1959, um, which I think is the only one that I've seen. Of, is that possible? Of his, all of his career? Of all of his career, besides this. Is that possible? I don't know. I guess it's possible. What have you, um, seen? What you, what have you seen? Gaslight. Nope. was uh, a brilliant film. I, I've seen that one. And other than that, um, I think that may be it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so clearly we we have work to do there, too. Yes, indeed. Okay. This was an interesting little note that I uh, dug up that I thought was quite interesting. This film was uh, released by MGM. And, of course, they had a hand in Gone with the Wind, as we talked about last mm-hmm. week. Well... Who was going to direct this film, but none other than George Cukor, before he got the call <laughs> to go <laughs> head over to jump on to Gone with the Wind. And so Lubitsch ended up stepping in to direct this film. So I thought that was just a very funny little little uh, hiccup there, because this does seem more in line with the types of films that Cukor is generally known for. That's um, pretty funny. I, I mean, I, I think it's great that Lubitsch ended up directing it, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, Q-Core may have, uh, uh, bitten a, uh, bitten a little too big on the, yeah. on the, uh, what is the, more, what he, is the he, metaphor I'm I, looking for I think for you mean he's biting and chewing too much more than he maybe <laughs> could have been chewing upon. There you go. Yes. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've taken over uh, for you. I clearly don't know how to speak tonight anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, what? Cinematography by William H. Daniels. Uh, also a, um, a quite a prolific cinematographer um, who is... I've seen a number of his films, uh, not the least of which Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, 1958, uh, Harvey, 1950. Um, really, How the West was one. How the West was one. That's right. That's right. Uh, Valley of the Dolls. Oh my goodness. Uh, the, he's been very, very busy. Uh, what did you think of the camera? You know, like I said earlier, it it just felt very uh, expected. It felt like a studio picture from the 30s. Nothing stood out to me really. One of the things I think that's that's most interesting about him is that he and Garbo uh, were peas in a pod. He shot 21 films for her. Uh, and that ends up, I think, making sort of a statement. We talked about uh, uh, who we talked about uh, with uh, James Wong, how the connection he made with the actress that liked the way he made her eyes look 
by staring into the black felt, right? It darkened her otherwise kind of cloudy blue eyes. And that's how he ended up as the, you know, director of photography for his first film. And, and I think this is, this is another one of those examples when you have an actress who makes a connection, uh, with an, with a, with a, a photographer that makes her look good. Um, you end up with a, a really interesting partnership. 21 films over the course of 15 years. I don't know if that happens so much these days. Yeah. Well, one, I don't know if there's any uh, uh, actor or actress who really has the the power or the clout to handpick their DP for every film, unless they happen to have kind of also stepped into the producer side of things. Right. Because generally you see the, the director... Uh, cinematographer, director, editor partnerships that that can span yeah. many years, right? Many right. many films, but but I think you're right. I think that actor partnership doesn't doesn't happen so much. Yeah, I don't think so. So yeah, anyhow, yeah, it is. A, it's an interesting thing, and I, it makes me. That's another thing that makes me want to see more of these films in particular, because again, I feel like I can't make uh, much of a connection with with his cinemagraphic style although i've seen grand hotel and anna karen and i i don't have a uh, too close of a memory of them i i didn't have time to to watch them it didn't even make that connection until uh looking up his work right for right. this conversation so it is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011 you're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. Well, how'd the, uh, let's talk numbers. How'd it do? It did, uh, it did okay. I, you know, it's hard to tell sometimes when you're digging into old numbers if you really have everything that you can find as far as their figures go. So I don't know if this is completely accurate, but from what I found, this film costs about, uh, $1.365 million to make, which is today's dollars is about 23 million. That's it. Still, is a healthy, healthy amount of money to use domestically. It ended up making one point two million, and international about one point one million. So, all told, uh, adjusted, it made about eighteen million. So, it did pretty well for itself. It ended up making about one hundred and forty thousand dollars per finished minute. 
All right. Profitable. Yeah. Uh, that's adjusted. But yeah, mm-hmm. it did, it did, it did good for itself. In the 1939 realm, it certainly didn't hit Gone with the Wind, uh, just the numbers from that. But, yeah. you know, it did okay. Right. Well, I say we rank it and see how it does for us. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and uh, make sure you sign in. Sign into your account and friend us up at the next reel and you will uh, we'll see if your movies line up to our movies. Everybody wants to be like Blot. <laughs> see how your ranking does with our ranking and with the blot score, the blot spot. Let's do this thing. All right. Ninochka or Hot Fuzz? <laughs> well, I have to go Hot Fuzz. Yep, I'm, I'm sorry, Greta. Ninochka or The Sandlot? Mm. I would do The Sandlot. Would you really? Yeah. All right. I'll give you The Sandlot. Ninochka. Or Escape from New York. Ninochka. Absolutely Ninochka. Another funny thing about the movie poster is it says, don't try to pronounce it, just go see it. <laughs> That's really funny that you bring that up right now because, you know, my wife speaks fluent Russian and she was giving me so much trouble because I keep calling it Ninochka and it's Ninochka. And, oh, and so of course I was, no one in the movie says that. I know. And she was listening to the movie saying, are they really, are those, those are not Russian people. I said, no, no, they're British and Swedish. <laughs> so, uh, and German and there, none of them, I don't think there's any Russians in here, but it's, it's Ninochka. Nor were there any French people. But, Nor yeah. French people. Right. Right. <laughs> it's a Hollywood movie from 1939. <laughs> what are you going to get out of it? All right. Ninochka or Ninochka or the game? The game. Uh, I would do the game, yeah. Ninochka or Christine? I'll do Ninochka. Yeah, I'll do Ninochka. Ninochka. Ninochka or Troll Hunter? <laughs> I'll go with Troll Hunter. Really? Yeah, that's a, that's a fun movie. That I was really, watching it, that I, I'll give it to you. Yeah, that was good. All right, uh, Ninochka or Detour? Mm. I'm going to pick Detour. Detour. Yeah, great little uh, film noir. Ninochka or Prometheus? Uh, I'm going with Ninochka. Ninochka, yeah. There you go. All right, 161. All right. Out of 191. All right, there you go. I think that's a fair place for it to I do, too. It was a funny, sweet little comedy in a list of really good movies. Excellent. All right, so it shall be done. Until then, I shall be in the bed. Go to bed, little father. I want to be alone. I got a one star. Someone who does, does not feel as good about the communist exploitation, capitalist exploitation, as we do. Maybe it's just too old for the genre in that the love conquest is long and boring and unrealistic. The tough woman suddenly, and I mean suddenly, is overtaken by love. It's nauseating. She seemed to entirely lose her personality and interesting traits. Uh, and then mm. <laughs> so good. Uh, the the response 
is uh, uh, to the the tough woman suddenly, and, and I mean suddenly is overtaken by love, it's nauseating. Uh, the response to that comment is, is that you, Greta? But I thought you were dead. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon commenters are the best. Oh, so funny. Well, I've got a three-star that said, Too Much Style by Robert Long Longrush. I wanted very much to like this movie. Somehow I had missed seeing it for years and I missed ever seeing a Garbo opus. When I finally viewed it last night, Ninochka was considerably below my high expectations. Here's why. The three Bolsheviks, or Ritz brothers, or three Stooges, were silly without being funny. Melvin Douglas was nothing more than the lounge lizard a la Fred Astaire. Ina Claire tried to be Billy Burke, but just talked funny. And when the Greta Garbo finally appeared, she was dumpy and had every close-up shot through gauze. So she laughed. By then, I didn't much care. The story was also a mess, implying that the choices that the two choices were between the Spartan austerity of Soviet Moscow and the Top Hat Champagne Society of pre-World War II Paris. Both were a little vacuous and simplistic. This is certainly from the golden age of Hollywood, and we know they could make great films in the era of 1939, but this isn't up there with the likes of The Wizard of Oz, Grapes of Wrath, etc. Perhaps I just expected too much after such a long wait. Mm, Interesting points. Yeah, yeah, it's too bad. It's interesting points. I mean, yeah, we didn't bring it up. The 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 two societies are all we see of the very the, the very sparse Soviet society and then the the uh, free wheeling uh, Parisian society. But um, yeah. yeah, it it's he's right. I mean, it's the golden age of Hollywood. It I don't think they were trying to give you uh, Warren Beatty's Reds with this film. <laughs> no, I don't think they were. <laughs> Oh, jeez, Amazon. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to learn more about membership, head on over to thenextreel.com slash membership where you can see how you can support the show. Thanks, everybody. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.